Well, as a church, we've been going through the teachings of Christ this year, and we're in a section of the teachings of Christ where Jesus sent letters to real churches, giving them some feedback on how they're doing, and also giving them some correction on what they're not doing. We've already been to Ephesus, and Christ said to Ephesus, you've got to bring back the love. They, they, they knew truth, but they weren't doing the love thing right. Then we went to Smyrna, uh, and in Smyrna, he said, be faithful unto death. Then we went to Pergamum, where he told them, never, ever compromise. Today we arrive at Sardis. Sardis. I'll tell you about Sardis in a moment, but first, if you had to pick a place in the United States that is the epitome of a secure place, like if you were in there or if something that was precious to you was in there, you know it was safe. One of the places that would make the top of your list would be Fort Knox. Fort Knox is known for being secure, safe. It is a fortified uh, we've got pictures of it here. It's like a fortified bunker that is intended to protect whatever is inside. Just try and break into it, right? In fact, we say, you've heard it before said, oh man, that's like as safe as Fort Knox, or that'd be the same as trying to break into Fort Knox. Or, it's like almost a saying just how safe this place is. I did a little research on Fort Knox this week because I didn't know very much about it. And the funnest websites to go to about Fort Knox are like the conspiracy theorist websites. <laughs> because it's like shrouded in mystery. Uh, so I don't know how much of this information is true, but I'm going to share it with you for fun. Allegedly, there's $270 billion worth of gold in Fort Knox. Just try and get close. There are layers and layers of security and checkpoints. The foundation is composed of multiple layers of cement, and then on top of the several layers of cement, they put a 10-foot-thick, solid granite floor. This place is secure. Uh, the safe that houses, allegedly, the gold uh, has a vault that has 27 inches. It's 27 inches thick. It's made of steel and concrete. If you were in this vault and an atomic bomb fell on top of you, you would survive. That's how safe you would be in the safe. There's also a military backup right down the street, 30,000 troops, 300 tanks, armed, ready to protect this place. Now, some speculate that there are landmines set around the uh, fortress as well as surface-to-air missiles and motion-censored automatic rifles. I would say this is a secure place, wouldn't you? Now, listen, in the ancient world, they had a saying. They had a saying that kind of described something that's impossible. And the saying went like this. The saying was, oh, let me, let me find it here. Oh, that's like, that's like to capture Sardis. Meaning if you said you were going to do something impossible, they'd be like, yeah, that's like trying to capture Sardis. In other words, Sardis was like the Fort Knox of this world. It was an impenetrable fortress. It was a thing that could not be conquered. Those who lived there were secure. It was the epitome of security. We've got pictures of Sardis that we'll throw up there. There's a lower city. Uh, there's also an upper. You see the hills all around it. They had, you know, a fortress up on top. And so, uh, but here's the, here's the thing. Twice in the history of Sardis, they were conquered because somebody climbed up a side of the hill that they weren't guarding. And the soldiers were asleep because they thought they were safe. But they got conquered because they were asleep. It's to this church that Jesus writes one of the most powerful messages in the Bible. Here's what he says to them. You think you're safe spiritually. You think you're secure spiritually. 
you think you are saved, but my judgment is coming on you. Sardis was a church filled with non-Christians who called themselves Christians. The fact that they thought they were already safe is what left them vulnerable to God's judgment. And just as the military forces climbed up the hill and conquered the city when they were sleeping, so God's judgment was coming upon this church filled with lifeless people who don't even know it's coming. Wow. They thought they were secure and God's judgment was coming upon them. This is a message that needs to be heard by everyone in the room because I think if you put a camera on me and said, hey, we've decided to let you talk to United States of America, every person, and you've got 30 minutes to do it, this is what I would say. I would preach this message. I wouldn't even think twice. The United States is filled with people who think they're going to heaven, but they're really going to hell. What group are you in? Christ has a word to us today, and he really wants you to know whether or not you truly are going to heaven or you just think you're going to heaven, but you're not. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we thank you for writing this letter to this church. They felt so secure, they felt so protected, and yet you were warning them that they were deceived. Help us to know where we stand with you and help us to have true security that can only be found in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, little background for you. Revelation is a book that was revealed to the Apostle John. He was imprisoned on an island called Patmos. In fact, we have a map here. He's in prison, spending his retirement on the southwest corner there of Patmos. He writes a letter to the seven churches that are in green, uh, with green circles around them. Each church kind of gets a letter that's, that's meant for them, but each letter is also meant for us because uh, this is God's word for each one of us. So we're learning from each letter. Today it arrives in Sardis, and in Revelation 3, verse 1, says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write this, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They've got a big problem. They're acting like they're alive. They're talking like they're alive. Other people think they're alive, but they're dead. If you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, you know that the whole movie is about a guy. I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it if you haven't seen it. Hold your ears if you haven't seen it. Bruce Willis thinks he's alive, thinks he's alive. But the kid knows he's dead. But he doesn't know he's dead. Okay? Thinks he's alive, he's really dead. Guess what? That describes you. Maybe. Here's the first thing you can jot down. First thing that this uh, letter to Sardis, this word to us is saying. Wake up to your true spiritual condition. Fill that in. Wake up. It's time to wake up to your true spiritual condition. Jesus says, wake up! Wake up. And it's not like they're in a nap. This more describes like, he flat out says, you're dead. And, he's, and then he describes as if like some others are like in a coma about to die. Like it's not even life what they're experiencing. It's like more death than it is life. Death describes a person who's not saved. Death can't describe a Christian. The spiritual state of death describes an unsaved person. So the fact that they are saying they're alive and thinking they're alive and Jesus says you're dead means they think they're saved and they're not. They're deceived. Wake up to your true spiritual condition. Now, Jesus is telling them something that can't be seen with the eye. 
He's describing their spiritual condition, which only he can truly see. Listen, if there's something going on with your health, you go and get a what? Maybe an x-ray, maybe an MRI. Why? Because it shows you what you can't see. I went in earlier this week to get an x-ray because my back has been acting up. I said, Doc, there might just be something in there that we can't see. You know, he can only poke around so much. My back keeps going out. I'm like, let's look in there. Let's see what's inside. All right. We got the x-ray back. You want to see it? This is a picture of the x-ray. Here it is. There it is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's called an x-ray photobomb. <laughs> Some of you were just spooked out. What is that? <laughs> an x-ray shows you what's inside. Shows you what's inside. Now, listen, here's the thing. If you argue... With an MRI, you're not going to win. I don't see a tumor. Yeah, you'll find out it's there one way or another. Arguing with God is like arguing with an MRI. If God says it's in your heart, it's in your heart. All right? And what God is saying is, inside of you, there is a state of spiritual death. You aren't alive to him. You don't have this kind of life at birth. And the Bible says that everyone is born without spiritual life, which is why we need to be born again. We need new life found in Christ. There's a spiritual state of awareness, of awakening, that is not present when we're born. That's why we baptize people after they put their faith in Christ, because it symbolizes someone actually coming to life as they come up out of the water. Wake up to your true spiritual condition. Who is it that's saying this to these people? The nerve of him! To say I'm not a Christian. Who does he think he is to question that I'm not a religious person? Okay, he identifies himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What does that mean? Well, follow carefully here because this gets really confusing. But when it says he has the seven spirits of God, I think that doesn't describe a quantity. Like there's seven of these things. I think it describes a quality. Sometimes the word seven is obviously used symbolically in the scripture. So when it says the seven spirits of God, it seems best to interpret that as describing the Holy Spirit. Well, what is it saying about him? Well, in Zechariah 4.10, it says that the Lord has seven eyes that see the whole world. Do you think God really has seven eyeballs? No. The number, the the, uh, quantity is trying to make a quality statement about the Lord, that he sees the fullness of creation. How does he do that? Well, there's the Spirit. And in Revelation 5, 6, it, calls, uh, it says that these are the eyes of the Lamb. So Jesus has these seven eyes, and now there's talking about these seven spirits. It seems like what's being described here is the Holy Spirit, and His quality is such that He has a fullness of sight on the entire creation of humanity. He's got eyes on everything. All right? How does God know everything? How does God... His spirit is omniscient. His spirit is omnipresent. So the seven spirits of God seems to describe the qualities of the spirit, uh, his omniscience and his omnipresence. And here's the thing. This is the Trinity. Christ has it. Do you see the spirit is Christ's way of knowing everything, being everywhere, and it's God the Father's way of permeating creation with his presence. Father, Son, Spirit. Who does he think he is telling me I'm not a Christian? Well, He sees everything. He knows everything. And what's this letter that just arrived? Who does John think he is telling me I'm not a Christian? Yeah, Jesus says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So now you have the Holy Spirit as being the voice of authority that even though John is the one who wrote it and a preacher is the one preaching it, God is the one who said it. Therefore, Jesus is the authority of truth in your life. He's the authoritative uh, analyst of your true spiritual condition. You have to wake up to your true spiritual condition, and the only one whose thoughts count is Jesus. What he says is true. What he thinks is right. What he demands is just. He is the authority in your life. If he says you're dead, you're dead. If he says you need life, you need life. You can argue with him like you can argue with an MRI. You're not going to be right. Well, if, if the one who knows me fully and who made me completely sees that I have a spiritual problem called death and I think I'm alive, how am I supposed to deal with that? Well, wake up to your true spiritual condition. Jot this down. You have to face the fact that I'm spiritually dead. Write that down. I'm spiritually dead and I need to be woken up from death, from a coma. I'm dead. He's not saying try harder. He's saying get saved. He's not saying you need effort. He's saying you need life because you're dead. This church was filled with the walking dead. This church was filled with spiritual death, but people said they were alive. They were deceived. Hey, listen, you can be religious and not go to heaven. Do you know that's true? You can have perfect attendance in a church and not go to heaven. You can get baptized and not go to heaven. The problem isn't that you lack religion. The problem is that you lack life. And you lack life because you lack Christ. If we don't get the problem right, we won't get the cure right. Wrong problem, wrong cure. Um, I saw this old ad. You ever see those old school ads of products that are no longer on the market anymore? Because they're like illegal or harmful? Check this out from the 1800s. This is great. Cocaine toothache drops <laughs> from the 1800s. There's so many things I like about this. Instantaneous cure. There's children playing with Lincoln Logs. <laughs> and it says for sale by all druggists. All of them. <laughs> and it's only 15 cents. Look out. What's the going rate today? Don't tell me. Cocaine toothache drops. Hey, if you went to a dentist today and he prescribed cocaine toothache drops for your child, you'd find a new dentist. Wrong cure. Wrong cure. If you don't give the wrong cure, you won't get cured. Listen, many churches treat the spiritual problem in the wrong way. Wrong way. Work harder. Go through these seven steps. Learn these four truths. Try these five habits. Wrong solution. If you realize I'm spiritually dead, then you realize what you really need is not more religion. What you really need is not more information. What you really need is life. And you can only get it from Christ. Here's the second thing you can write down under the first point. Wake up to your true spiritual condition. I need to realize I'm spiritually dead, and I need to realize good works can't save me. Fill that in. Good works can't save me. Jesus says here in verse 2, wake up. Wake up, be strengthened for what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What does he mean there by I have not found your works complete? He's giving them an incomplete on an assignment. 
You remember in school, you could get an A or a B or you can get an F or you can get the incomplete. What does that mean? You didn't finish. You got to finish. You started something you didn't finish. Be very careful. What does the Bible say here? What is he giving them an incomplete on? Salvation. You got an incomplete on getting saved. It's not like he's saying work more, like as if you hit a certain quota of work. You just haven't hit your quota yet. Then you'll be saved. He's not saying that at all. You have to understand how works and faith go together. Faith in Christ Jesus is what saves you once and for all. True saving faith produces works of righteousness. Faith in Christ comes first. Works that are evidence of salvation come after. Right? That's the way it happens. So what Jesus is saying is, okay, you got baptized, you professed your faith, but there's no evidence that that was the real thing. There's no evidence. Okay, what, what we sometimes say is no fruit, no root. Another way to say it is if Christ hasn't changed you, Christ hasn't saved you. Meaning if all you have is a profession and nothing in your life has changed, there's no evidence that you're a follower of Christ. You can think you're saved, but you're not saved. Good works can't save me. Faith in Christ saves me, but works are evidence of my salvation. We know that in this church, they weren't believing the gospel and they weren't behaving the gospel. They weren't doing either right. They weren't believing the gospel because Jesus is about to say to them, you forgot the truth. They weren't behaving the gospel because he's about to say, you've soiled your garments in sin. They're not believing the gospel. They're not behaving the gospel, but they're talking like they are. This was basically a social club with the cross on the wall where anyone can do anything, believe anything, join and think they're going to heaven. Uh, Welcome to America. That's us. Sardis, uh, one scholar called it a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. They were peacefully coexisting with the diverse world around them. Individuals need to evaluate their true spiritual condition, but churches do too. And listen, we learn from this letter to the church in Sardis that some churches kill. You're dead. Some churches kill. Some churches prepare people for hell better than the world. Churches you've attended. Churches that peddle a weak, light gospel. Call it spiritual splendor. A tasty gospel substitute. That seems to do the trick, but causes spiritual cancer. Doesn't help anyone. In fact, kills. Creates false Christians that look alive but are really dead. Listen, if you've been to one of these churches, you've been given false confidence. You're asleep at the top of Sardis thinking that you're safe. You're in Fort Knox thinking no one will ever be able to penetrate. You have been given a false sense of security. You've been told you're going to heaven, and Jesus is saying you're not going to heaven. Wake up to your true spiritual condition. I'm spiritually dead. I need life. Good works can't save me. Here's the second point. Remember the truth about Christ. Okay, I'm nervous. How how do I know which group I'm in? I mean, if I think I'm going to heaven, how do I know if I'm not going to heaven? Hey, remember the truth about Christ. We can be so forgetful. What is the truth about Christ? I didn't even know when I started going to church what the gospel was. I thought it was just a certain type of music that they gave an award out, you know, at the Grammys. Gospel music, here you go. I couldn't, if you asked me what's the gospel, I couldn't tell you. But now I can tell you the gospel is the good news That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. It's good news. It means good news. 
What is it that I have to believe in order to be saved? Well, in Romans 3.23, it says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning if you're a living, breathing human, you're all. You're included in all. And Jesus says, you've sinned. Not just a few oopsies and boo-boos and little white lies. Sinned. You're guilty in God's court of law because of your sin. You don't deserve to go to heaven. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. In Eden, Adam and Eve were not supposed to die. God made provision for them to live. But when they sinned, they died. You die because you sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The only way that you can receive eternal life is through a gift. The only person who can give you that gift is Jesus Christ. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't find it any other way. Only Jesus can give it to you. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You receive this gift as a sinner. You can't clean yourself up. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't become a religious person and then come to Christ. From the very beginning, you have to say, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. Christ died for you. God loves you. But he died for you while you were still a sinner. And then Romans 10, 9 to 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it goes on to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the only hope you and I have of entering into the presence of a holy God forever. If that's not the gospel you heard, if that's not the gospel you received, then you're not a saved person. There is no other way. This church decided that they would profess to be a Christian and act like a Christian, but they were playing church. They were playing church. They really were just like the world. They weren't changing any of their behavior. They weren't changing any of their beliefs. If you followed them around for a week, you would see no evidence that they were following Christ. And that's how many Christians, so-called Christians, live. And because of it, they're in danger of being attacked by who? Who does it say here? Well, let's read on. It says, Remember then what you received and heard, verse 3. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Who's coming? It's the judgment of God that's coming. The judgment of God is creeping up the hill while they feel so safe and they're sound asleep spiritually. They think they're safe. God's judgment is coming. And coming like a thief, meaning it will come when you don't expect it. All right, you're not going to get a letter in the mail. You've got five years left. It happens. The thief doesn't knock on your door and say, hey, does tomorrow night at 1130, does that work okay for you? It happens. And then it's too late. He's telling you your time is running out. Your time is running out. You have to remember the truth about Christ. Sometimes people say to me, well, I could never serve a God who allows a place called hell. What's with this judgment thing? I would never serve a God like that. Which that always puzzles me. That puzzles me. Because, you know, if Mike here was on a plane and God got on the plane and said, Mike, get off the plane, the plane's going to crash. And then Mike said back to God, I won't follow a God who allows planes to crash. And then God says, that's why I want you to get off the plane so you don't have to be in the plane crash. And Mike says, no, I'll never follow a God who allows planes to crash. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? 
See, because if everyone followed the Lord, there would be no hell. There would be demons there who are condemned. But it's the very rebellion that Mike is expressing that creates the hell that he doesn't like. Get off the plane. I don't want to get off the plane. Do you see how Jesus is telling you how it's going to end before it ends? Because he wants you to get off the plane. And it doesn't help to maintain a stubborn, self-righteous heart. I will never follow a God like that. Yeah, he wants you to get off the plane. Get off the plane. He's warning you in advance. Wake up. Remember the truth about Christ. He's coming in judgment. Evaluate what you've heard in churches you've been to in the past to see if you've received the gospel that's actually saved you. Let me give you a list of a few things dead churches do. Dead churches believe some of the Bible. If the church that you know and love, the church that you were a part of, eh, some of this is true, some of this is not true. You can't believe it all, some of it. Dead church. Dead churches love what God hates. Dead churches love what God hates. If you've been taught to love things that God hates and justify things God condemns and accept things that God... That's a dead church. Dead churches live in tradition. They don't seek to gain ground for Christ. They fail at evangelism. They're inward focused. It's all motions. Dead churches demand nothing of disciples. Oh, you don't have to change. You don't have to give up that sin. You don't have to... Eh, you can just come as you are and stay that way. Dead church. Dead churches never mention hell. Never mention hell. May or may not believe in hell. Hey, listen, if you went to a church like that and you were taught any other thing about Christ or how you can get to heaven, you're likely not going to heaven. Christ is giving you a wake-up call today. Wake up. Wake up to your true spiritual condition and remember the truth about Christ because only that truth can save you. And he says here in verse 3, Remember, keep it, and repent. So jot this down. Here's the third point. Repent and follow Christ. Repent and follow Christ. Um, repent is, is like saying you're sorry to God for being sinful. Now, nobody likes saying they're sorry. Am I correct? Nobody likes saying they're sorry. Kids don't like apologizing. Apologize to your sister for hitting her. I don't want to. I found a few kid apology notes online this week. They're the cutest thing ever. Check this out. This is a kid apology note. Dear Brody, Miss P made me write you this note, and all I want to say sorry for is not being sorry. Because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. <laughs> Liam. Here's another one that's straight and to the point. <laughs> sorry because of nothing. <laughs> Nobody likes to say they're sorry, but I think that those kids, in their honesty, they narrate what our heart says to God. Sorry for nothing. Sorry because of, no, sorry for what? I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. What do you mean sorry? Or sorry for a few, okay, I told a little white lie, okay. Cheated on my taxes a little bit, okay, sorry for a few things. But you see, repentance means this. Repentance means I am on a course in life that's leading me to hell forever. I realize that God calls me to turn around to Christ. So I turn. Repenting is the turning of the whole person to Christ for salvation. All you do is you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he died on the cross for you. Repent and believe. That's it. He saves you. You have to repent and follow Christ. What does that look like? Well, Jesus says here, uh, reading on in verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, 
people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All right, couple of true believers in the church. So like four or five of you put up your hands. First four or five, raise up your hands. First four or five, get to go to heaven. Okay, stop. Good. No, 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 keep your hands up. Congratulations. You all are going to heaven. All right, everybody else, raise your hand now. You didn't get in the first group. Got to be quick on the draw. Jesus, when he looked into this church, said, going to heaven, few, few. Can you imagine if I, dear Harvest Palis, Jesus wrote us a letter. Six of you are going to heaven. This is the wake-up call they were getting. Few, few. He says, a few of you have not soiled your garments. What does that mean? Well, first of all, Sardis was known for where they like started dyeing wool, or at least so they claim. So this was like a fashion center of the world. Clothing was their thing. So to say to a fashion person, can you imagine saying to like a runway, runway model or whatever, man, that, that outfit is hideous. Like you got stains all over it. It's like the ugliest thing I've ever seen. What? He's like hitting him where it hurts. Your clothes are filthy. And clothing is symbolic for the soul. What he's saying is your spiritual condition, your heart, is a stained garment. One of the ways God describes the state of our soul before Christ is stained or filthy. Okay, so give me some things that stain really bad. Stain. What stains? Grass. Blueberries. What else? Grease. Coffee. Blood. Nothing stains like those, right? Hey, God's saying nothing stains like sin. You've got an ink spill down the core of your being. You can't wash it out. It's black. But Christ comes along with a white robe, new life, new heart. You put your faith in him and he cleanses you within so that you're white as snow. It's just an artistic way of telling you what Jesus does inside of you. He says, hey, your garments are filthy, meaning you're still filled with sin. Christ hasn't washed you yet, but he wants to give you a new nature. He wants to cleanse you within of all of your sins so that you will be white. Who gets to go to heaven? People who walk with Christ. That's it. It's followers of Christ that get to go to heaven because only Jesus can clean the soul. He says, you still have a few who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me. They will be clothed in white. How do I know if I'm saved or if I'm not saved? Well, here's a list of three things that tell you, that describe the person who thinks they're going to heaven, but they're not. I think I'm going to heaven, but I'm not. I'd tell you I'm getting to heaven, but I'm not. Number one, I don't worship Christ. You can write that down. I don't worship Christ. The person who doesn't worship Christ, how can we define them? Well, first, they've never been baptized. They, they won't get in front of people and publicly profess that Jesus is their Lord. That's a, that's a worshipful thing, to tell people what Jesus is worth, to tell them how much you value him. People who have not been baptized, there's a giant question mark over their life. They're also not plugged into a church. Church isn't important to them. Maybe they just go to church on TV. They, just, they really don't, they don't like singing. Their joy of the Lord does not prompt them to sing. I don't worship Christ. If you don't worship Christ, that's evidence that you're probably not going to heaven. The next one is, I don't work for Christ. I don't work for Christ. He calls us his servants, and he has work for us to do in this life. Every truly saved person has the Holy Spirit in them, and God has prepared in advance the works to which they are called. 
meaning every true believer will serve Christ's purpose in this life and in his church. If I talk to a person who says they're going to heaven and they don't go to church, they've never been baptized, they don't sing to the Lord, they're not doing anything for Christ. They have, they're not serving Christ in any way. I'm starting to feel like this is an unsaved person. The third one is I don't walk with Christ. I don't walk with Christ. Walking with Christ can be described by you and Christ personally going somewhere together, meaning you have time with him, you pray to him, you read your Bible, um, he's done some things in your life that you can talk about. That's walking with Christ. But we also walk with Christ together. So you love the family of God. You're in the family of God. You let people minister to you. You minister to others. That's called walking with Christ. Listen, if you don't worship Christ, if you don't work for Christ, if you don't walk with Christ, you're not going to heaven. This is the only definition of a follower of Christ found in Scripture. This is what Christians do. If you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it says they worshipped him, right? They were baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, right? And I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You have walking with Christ. You have working for Christ. You have worshiping Christ. It's all right there. If this evidence is not in your life, whatever profession you may have said is invalid. You're not a saved person. Repent and follow Christ. Thankfully, just at the moment, when everyone is like, what if I'm not saved? How do I know if I'm saved or not? (laughs) He gives us encouragement. He gives us reassurance. And there's four things that he gives us, bam, 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 right here at the end, to reassure those. This is also motivation for those who are not yet saved. Why would I do this? Why would I repent and follow Christ? Well, it says this. In verse 5, it says, the one who conquers... You'll overcome. There's a battle between good and evil. And following Christ means that you will overcome. The battle for good and for evil will be won. Good will win. There won't be evil forever in heaven. You'll overcome. But you have to persevere to the end. It says, to the one who conquers will be clothed in white. You're dressed in white now if you're a believer in Christ. And you will be dressed in white forever. It stands for purity of soul and heart. You are washed by the blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross for you. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses your soul of sin. It also says, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'll overcome. You'll be dressed in white. He says, your name is in the book of life, and it will never come out. The way Judgment Day goes down is this. There's a book with your name on it that's open. Everything you've ever done wrong is in there. Everything you've ever thought, said, everything that you've left undone that was a good thing, it's all in there and it's going to be a big book. It's going to be exhaustively comprehensive. It's going to have every single thing in there. At the end of your book, the end of my book, the the verdict is guilty. Nobody's book is going to get them into heaven. But then there's going to be a call. Okay, check the book of life. This is called the Lamb's book. The book with Christ's name on it is open. And if your name is in that book, you've been forgiven of everything that's in your book. If your name is not in that book, you don't go to heaven. What assurance that Jesus gives saved people. 
he says, never will I blot that, your name out of that book. Listen, you don't use grace as a license to sin, but Christians, we will sin, we will fail. That's not, that's not what he's talking about, all right? Your book, even after Christ, is going to get worse, all right? But if you're a saved person and you truly follow Christ and you walk with him and you work for him and you worship him, never will I take your name out of that book. You're secure forever. And he says, I will acknowledge you before God. Really, if I were to ask you today, why are you going to get into heaven? The only answer that's valid is, I'm with him. Christ is going to get me in. Christ is going to tell God, I'm with him. I don't deserve to get in. Several times people have told me, well, I'm a pretty good person. Eh. Well, I've lived life the way I think it should be lived. Nope. I've done the best that I can. Uh Uh-uh. Been a pretty regular attempt. Nope. All of that is deceiving. The only way you can get into heaven is if you follow Christ. Listen, the wake-up call for this morning is this. Some of you have been given a false confidence that you're going to heaven, but you're really not. Maybe a church leader told you you're going to heaven. Maybe a parent told you you're going to heaven. Maybe a friend, maybe a teacher. Jesus is saying you're not going to heaven. He's saying you're dead. You have to come to me. You have to be born again. You have to believe what I said. You have to repent. If you do that, I'll dress you in white. I'll profess your name to God. If you don't do that, my judgment is one day closer to you today than it was yesterday. Hey, get off the plane. Get off the plane. Put your faith in Christ. He wants to save you. I want to give you an invitation right now to respond to what you heard by putting your faith in Christ. I don't want to be a salesman here. I don't want to turn up the emotional volume or in any way coerce you. I just want to say this. Some of you know that this is for you today. Some of you know that Christ is telling you, you thought you were saved. You're not saved. Today is the day. Delay no longer. This message is a threat by God to people who think they're going to heaven. Wake up. I want to give you the chance to put your faith in Christ right now. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you and we thank you for hard words that are true. Uh, This is not just the voice of man. This is the voice of God in your scripture. There are some in this room today, Lord, right now they are so riddled with guilt. They're afraid of what would happen if they were to pass away today. They don't have confidence that they're going to heaven. You're inviting them to put their faith in Christ and to become a follower of Christ and so be saved. Lord, I just pray for those who know that you are calling them. I pray for those who are ready to repent, ready to be done with this life, ready to do away with their allegiance to the world, ready to be a part of the family of God, ready to stand apart from the world that is condemned. Father, I just want to lead them in a prayer right now, and in their own hearts, I just invite them to pray along with me. Father in heaven, forgive me for my sins. My heart is stained and filthy. Cleanse my heart and make me white. I believe Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm a sinner. I believe he died on the cross in my place. I believe he rose again and he lives now. Jesus, give me eternal life. Jesus, give me hope that I will go to heaven. You are my confidence You are my only confidence. If 
Father, I just pray for those who right now are speaking to you from the heart. Give them assurance that you love them. Give them assurance that you've saved them and forgiven them and you will never blot their name out of the book of life. Give them hope, Lord, that new life in Christ is why they're here. Help them to follow you and serve you faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.